Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Amy, there's a great uh, new Earwolf podcast. I don't know if it's new, but it's new to me. It's called Dr. Game Show. Uh, have you heard it? I have because I like to compete. I oh. am a competitive person. Me too. I've been so passive in my car listening to podcasts. This one actually makes me want to get involved. Uh, Joe, like that. that's like our listeners always been like yelling, like, "Why did you say that about Josh? You want to <laughs> yell? You need to check out Doctor Game Show. Get on it because uh, Joe Firestone, who is super funny, and Manolo Moreno play these listener created games and. I don't know. It's really, really fun. I want to actually take some of these games and bring them to, like, a party game night. I feel like they actually will translate well. I like games. I feel like games are the future. Honestly, I do feel like there's this shift towards games, towards us hanging out and actually hanging out. But this is like you hanging out in your car and screaming. And you're screaming at people like Chris Gethard, Gilbert Gottfried, Brian Safi, Lauren Lapkus, everybody, Michael Ian Black. Just scream Matt Gourley. I want to scream at everyone. I'm like, no. Now, if you want to kind of get an idea of the games they're playing, here are some of the games. Um, <laughs> so, like, one is it's called, like, State Your Unpopular Opinion. Very easy. You come and come out with an unpopular opinion. Like, uh, Amy, for you, it would be like Shawshank is uh, undeserving of being on the AFI Top 100 list. Yes, I will state it. Shawshank is undeserving of being in the, the AFI Top 100 list. Or you could do, like, Gilbert Godfrey uh, GPS, which is like, okay, first, take a left down the street. Then, go straight. Stop at the light. Make a right. You could do that. Uh, they have Werewolf Elton John, which is singing Elton John song while slowly transforming into a werewolf. Oh, my God. I don't know which if I Which one do kn- you do? Hold uh, me closer, tiny dance. Oh, that's a good one. I was going to be Hold like. Hold me closer, tiny dance. <laughs> I was going to be like. Saturday night's all right. <laughs> this is already fun. All right, so Dr. Game Show, it is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, so check out Dr. Game Show every Wednesday, whenever you want, wherever you listen. Dr. Game Show. The year is 1950, and it's going to be a Betty Davis night. The movie, all about Eve. Welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I am Paul Shear. I'm Amy Nicholson. And this is the podcast where we go through the AFI's top 100 greatest films of all time. 
American edition. Before we get into this week's episode, we have to go back a little bit and talk about what your reactions to King Kong were. And they were pretty great. People genuinely were on the same page as us. King Kong, classic film, rewatchable film. But Andrew Ryan brought up a very interesting point. He's Madman Malfonso on Twitter. He said the guy who turned the Wilhelm scream into an Easter egg wasn't just some sound mixer. His name was Ben Burt. And ben Burt! Who... I, f- I think if you know anything about Star Wars, you know that his name is synonymous with that film, created the Chewbacca sound. He's done amazing things, but I think the first sound mixer I ever learned about was Ben Burt. So it's uh, because of Ben Burt, that's how the Wilhelm scream came to be popularized. I almost want to ask what the last sound mixer was that you learned about, because I feel like we need to protect sound mixers now that I've... Did you see the thing about the Academy yesterday? No, what happened there? Uh, That the Academy is changing up the Oscars again, and they're adding a most popular film category, which I think is their way of shoving all the sound mixing stuff off the stage. But do you not like the popular film category? I mean, when the MTV Movie Awards exist, why the fuck do we need this in the Oscars? Also, what I want to know is, how are they going to decide what's popular or not? Like... When Shape of Water makes $63 million, is that a popular film or a not popular film? What are they going to Here's what I think. I think that this category, I'm excited for it because it gives a chance for all those movies that should be getting some attention but are not respectable enough. Like, you know, from the super bads to the bridesmaids to Fast and Furious even. You are not wrong. And yes, they should be celebrated. And the way you do that is by buckets of money like confetti, which they already got. They don't need a little statue. Wow. Interesting. Okay. (laughs) Interesting. But don't you think, I always think back to Chris Rock hosting the Academy Awards and going to a Magic Johnson theater and talking to everyone there and going, what was your favorite movie this year? And no one talked about any Academy Awards movies. Are we living in this highfalutin society where we can talk about all these great movies that no one actually goes to see that's in these little independent houses? Oh, my houses? God. All these highfalutin movies want is one night and then a podcast about them like 50 years later. <laughs> can we not let them have that? <laughs> All right, well, back to King Kong here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that conversation, by the way, is continuing right now on our on the Unspooled Facebook group, which, uh, by the way, I want to give a shout-out to yes. Kate Littleton. She's just done such an awesome job setting the tone of our Facebook group. I'm so impressed by it. It's, like, such a great, awesome, nerdy, positive, rad-ass, rad-ass, uh, rad-ass is a word I'm inventing, <laughs> rad-ass conversation about movies. It's, I don't know. I adore everybody in there, and I just want to give a big thumbs up to Kate for upsetting the tone, and for everybody else for just being awesome. Thank you, Kate. And get in on this conversation over at our Facebook listener group, and check out our brand new website at unspooledpod.com. You can find out all the information you need to know. Oh, also, so many people adored our zoo guest, Kate Gilmore. Oh, she's amazing. We're having a week of awesome Kates. She was just so badass. And like, I swear to God, Paul, right when she left the studio, weren't we like, give her a TV show? 100%. She was so personable, so fun. And uh, if you make it out to the LA Zoo, look for her. She's probably out there with those great apes. Yeah. I learned more and more. I got to really uh, drop some knowledge on my son when I talked to him about Curious George. I'm like, not a monkey. Not a monkey, bro. Not a monkey. <laughs> and he's like, what? And I was like, shut up. Dad's smart. All right. Well, enough about King Kong. Let's get into our main attraction. All right, Amy, let's get into it. Number 28 on the AFI's top 
films of all time, American. People really want me to say American. American. American films of all time. American films. Is All About Eve, which came out in 1950, was written and directed by Joseph L. Mankiewicz and stars Betty Davis, Ann Baxter, George Sanders, and Marilyn Monroe, which was a real surprise to me. Um, This movie, where do you think it rates on the IMDb top films of all time list? Ooh, I don't trust those 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 people. Yeah. So um, I'm going to say 70. 115. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> the plot of All About Eve. Established dramatic star Margot Channing has just turned 40. She's in love with a younger man. He's 32. A scandalous Ooh. 32 named Bill. When her best friend, who's married to the playwright that she works with, Brings in this little girl from the cold who decides to try to take over her entire career. And that would be Eve, played by Anne Baxter. Well, it's so interesting because I never saw All About Eve. I've heard about it many a time. Everyone says it's great. But it might not be the only one. I think a lot of people have not seen All About Eve. Let's hear what you think All About Eve is about. I think All About Eve is about a downtrodden author who's trying to write the next great American novel. Eve is just so upset because everyone has died during her wedding and she gets so mad she climbs to the top of the tower and she throws herself off. I'm guessing it has something to do with a young woman looking to move to a big city. A small town girl maybe from Telfner, Texas and she goes to a big city and I think that she has some sort of sexual awakening in the big city. And something happens, and then there's, like, a murder at the end, and you think, like, one of them killed the other, but it's actually the other way around. Uh, I've yet to see All About Eve. After thinking quite a long time on it, I'm going to say it's All About Eve. All good thoughts. And I would say totally wrong, just like me. I I wrote down this before I watched the movie. Betty Davis is Eve. Eh, Already wrong. (laughs) Um, She's an alcoholic abuser who no one loves, but she gets the job done. She's in a loveless marriage, but she doesn't care because the only thing that makes a difference to her is that she's loved by everyone else. If you were describing Eve, you're describing Eve pretty well, except for the loveless marriage part. Right. Were you picturing it all? Because to me, I find this to be like a famous meme or gif, the fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Yeah, and that scene is great, but that moment doesn't seem to stick out the way that the memification of that moment is. It, it, it doesn't feel like that weighted moment, you know, that we right. that I was like, used to. Yeah. Because honestly, in All About Eve... Every line is terrific. This is one of the best scripts I think we might even find on this list, to well, be honest. I was going to ask. Phenomenal. I 100% agree. I'm blown away by just the level of writing in this film. I mean, the narration is one thing, but then the dialogue, it's just like a Tom Cruise stunt might be in a Mission Impossible movie where you're at the edge of your seat. This is how I feel about the dialogue. Like, whoa, like I'm watching these two people just talk in in quiet tones, and I'm just like, what? what's going to happen next? What's happening here? It's, I, I was fully uh, brought in by the dialogue. Yeah, everybody in this movie is so smart, so funny, so mean, with one exception, 
that would be Eve. Right. This is this is a world where everybody's just like cracking quips. We're all like got the Algonquin. We're the funniest people we've ever met. And then this one person shows up, Eve, who's just the sweetest and most sincere thing and never fits in. She's never funny like anybody else. But everyone around her, oh, my God, they're amazing. I mean, from the very beginning of this tone that they set, you know, being like the Pulitzer is a questionable honor, letting you know from the top. This movie is going to be sardonic. It's going to be cynical. It's going to have a thing it loves more than anything else, which is the theater. And even that, it will never take totally seriously, even as it says it is life and death. I just want to highlight some of the great writing here. There's a clip between Bill and Eve, and Eve is trying to, I don't know, bring Bill over to the dark side. I just love the way this plays. Don't run away, Bill. From what would I be running? You're always after truth on the stage. What about off? I'm for it. Then face it, I have. Ever since that first night here in this dressing room. When I told you what every young actress should know? When you told me that whatever I became, it would be because of you. Makeup's a little heavy. And for you. You're quite a girl. You think? I'm in love with Margot. Hadn't you heard? You hear all kinds of things. I'm only human, rumors to the contrary, and I'm as curious as the next man. Find out. Only thing. What I go after, I want to go after. I don't want it to come after me. Don't cry. Just score it as an incomplete forward pass. An incomplete forward pass. What do you think King Kong would have called it? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think he would say anything. He can't speak. Uh... All right. But I think it just kind of impresses me the way that this movie uses language and what it articulates. I think one of the things I'm constantly blown away by on this list is how relevant these films seem and how harsh they are in a in a good way. Like people were doing controversial things or making strong points. I think I just am impressed by it. Yeah. And they were fighting for every single word they got in. I mean, Mankiewicz had to fight. The censor, Joe Breen, line by line by line for this wow. script. Yeah, like, you know, early on, you have that bit where Betty Davis is in her dressing room and she's mocking this idea of the love starved Southern woman. The line was sex starved. And they were like, you cannot do that. Oh, so they switched wow. it to love. And then even later on in that scene, when maybe my favorite character in the whole uh, movie, Thelma Ritter as Birdie walks in, and Birdie's like kind of slightly mocking um, this tragic tale of woe that Eve is telling them that she's this orphan and she's poor and she worked in a beer factory and she fell in love with a soldier and the soldier died and blah, 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 blah. And, and Thelma Ritter says, everything but the bloodhound snapping at her rear end, they're like, you can't say that. That's so vulgar. And Mankowitz fought them. He was like, I want to say arse. So what do you think about that? Wow. <laughs> okay. Let me lay a theory on you. So in my mind, I was thinking, was Bertie Margot and now... Eve is taking over for uh, Margot, and then that woman at the end is taking over for Eve, if that makes sense. Oh, it, that's interesting. I never thought about that. Yeah, when I was re-watching it, because I watched it almost, uh, I watched it one and a half times, because I just, I felt like there was so much there in the dialogue that I wanted to kind of get back into it. I, it just, it felt like reading a dense book. Like, yes, I'm catching a lot, but the the word choices here is so full that it actually paid off Great dividends on the second watch. That's so interesting. Yeah, to think about Bertie as this character of what can happen when you stop being the, the star. Mm-hmm. It's hard to imagine Bertie having 
the pretension of being a Margot, like, ever. But then also, Margot has moments where she totally loses her pretension. I mean, that's one of the things I love about Betty Davis's performance is she does her heightened, like, Hamlet routine, mm-hmm. as Bertie calls it. And then she's just, like, a angry child. And you see her toggle back and forth constantly. I mean, to me, All About Eve is so much a movie about performance, not just performance on the stage, but these characters performing for each other and then who they are when they're alone. And I, and I even pulled a little sample of it just because yeah. I love this sample. This is when Margot suspects that Eve is trying to horn in on her man. You know, some stuff has happened where, like, Eve is slightly sabotaging her sleep by having a call go in at midnight to her boyfriend on the West Coast to wish him a happy birthday. And she realizes that Eve has been, like, texting him behind her back, texting him. Yeah. Texting, totally sending him all these emojis. Like, yeah. LOL, let's make you a surprise Bit-mojis. birthday party. <laughs> and so she's turning on her... At this party, she's upstairs with Bertie. when Bertie lets her know that Eve is downstairs flirting with her man. And what I want to play here is just that little bit of them communicating silently and just this glimpse of, like, what an awesome female friendship looks like. And then I want you to listen for Betty Davis's footsteps because she leaves the room. She's really dramatic. And when nobody is looking, she starts to run. And then by the time she makes it downstairs, she's got her composure back. Miss Billy's late. Late for what? Don't be dense, the party. I ain't dense, and he's been here for 20 minutes. Well, I certainly think it's odd he hasn't even come up to. And she drowns her first martini of the night. <laughs> Don't let it worry you, said the cameraman. Even DeMille couldn't see anything looking through the wrong end, so that was the first and last... Don't let me kill the point. There isn't it a story for grown-ups. You've heard it. About the time I looked through the wrong end of the camera finder. Remind me to tell you about the time I looked into the heart of an artichoke. I'd like to hear it. Some snowy night in front of the fire. In the meantime, while we're on the subject, <laughs> would you check about the hors d'oeuvres, Eve? The caterer forgot them. The varnish wasn't dry or something. And you hear her just slip into this role of the grand dame, the woman oh. she's been playing on the stage. Well, she literally enters that room almost in a theatrical way, like at the top of a staircase and watches it, makes her line, and then comes down. It's a very theatrical direction of that scene. I think that's mirroring it. You know, one thing about this, just a quick aside, um, the dress that she wears in this scene, the famous dress, you know, it's going to be a bumpy night, that dress, was designed by Edith Head. And when she put it on, Betty Davis, it didn't fit. And so Betty Davis came up with the idea that let me just pull it down over my shoulders. And that is how this dress came to be. It was not supposed to fit like that at all. It looks so fantastic. And what I love about it is it, you know, kind of hints that Margot's definitely trying to look sexy tonight. Margot's going for it. She's like, this woman's after my man and I'm going to look hot. Because you're right. We see her dressed up in all the costumes of this play. We never actually see her perform on stage. We never see anybody right. perform on stage. You only see her bow, which is, a, in a sense, another performative, like her shyness and the way she looks at the standing ovation. It, it's it's uh, She's performing the shyness. Exactly. But the way that she's dressed is, you know, as like a gigantic Betty Davis fan, is how you would see Betty Davis in movies a lot. Betty right. Davis played so many Southern bitches with ringlets. Like, that was just her thing. Oh, wow. She was like, here I go. In fact, right after I watched this again, I put on um, The Old Maid because I was, like, folding laundry. It's on Hallstruck. Uh-huh. Old Maid is, like, evil. It's such an evil, wonderful, wonderful film that Jezebel, all her stuff from this period is just, like, 
mean. And so to have her be another one of these like ringletted monsters is so yeah. perfect. Well, was this role very different than anything we had seen on screen so far for an actress of her stature? I mean, because it's a very revealing role. I think we give always we give props to actors like, oh, my God, they went there. They they were ugly. And and not to say she's ugly, but she's showing herself in states that I feel like are were not typical to a yeah, movie star. I wonder if she is even letting herself get aged up in the makeup because I don't feel like she looked like this all yeah. the time. I mean, because she's playing a person who just turned 40. I don't think she looks 40. I think she looks older than 40 in the way they've made her look. I agree. I feel like they definitely want to make her look a little road hard, I, I like beaten a little bit, you know? That's super interesting because, you know, this is 1950. The other big movie this year that we're definitely going to get to is Sunset Boulevard, mm-hmm. also about an aging actress. I wonder, like, in the timing of Hollywood and the generations of Hollywood coming in and out, how we were feeling in 1950, where we suddenly taking this, like, look back at everywhere we've been, you know, from vaudevillians like Birdie to what these actresses are doing now. Because actually, yeah, 1950, TV is starting to come forward. Film is under threat. I really wonder if it's also the changing of the guard. You know, it's sort of like film is obviously popularized and people are seeing it, but there is probably a shift in new people coming in, new fan favorites. I don't know. I may, I could be wrong on that. I could be decades off. Like new, new fan favorites like Marilyn Monroe, who was about to rock everybody's world, but not yet. Right. When All About Eve comes out, like nobody had even written a magazine article about her yet. You know how the Oscars still sort of do this thing? It's actually slightly more of a Golden Globes thing where they have like a young, hot actress come out and present an award as a yes. way of saying, we want this person to be a big deal. Mm-hmm. That was Marilyn Monroe after All About Eve. She wasn't even that person yet. In wow. fact- I have a little clip of Marilyn Monroe with the Oscars. Okay, great. Because it is such a highly cooperative enterprise, this award is not given to an individual. It goes to a sound recording department. Those nominated are All About Eve, 20th Century Fox, Cinderella, Walt Disney Productions, RKO Radio, Louisa, Universal International, our very own Samuel Goldwyn Productions, RKO Radio, and Trio, J. Arthur Rank, Sydney Box, Paramount British. The envelope, please. The winner, Olivier. Did you know that Zsa Zsa Gabor would often show up on the set of All About Eve because she was married to George Saunders. And George Addison Sa- DeWitt. Yeah, Addison DeWitt, who basically is traveling around with Marilyn Monroe. And Zsa Zsa was so, like, intimidated by Marilyn Monroe that she was there just kind of watching like a hawk. And there's nothing uh, even really flirtatious or sexual between those two characters at all. Like he's just carrying around his arm candy. In a weird way, I thought Addison DeWitt is gay uh, and is just basically positioning himself to be surrounded in the right way. I mean, did did you read that or is that me just reading into that? He seems most attracted to power. Yes. Absolutely. Well, like when he's making that deal with Eve towards the end of the film, it felt like we're making an arrangement that is good for both of us. Yeah, you know, that's really interesting because I just wrote this uh, big cover story for The Guardian on this guy, Scotty Bowers. Have you heard about him? No. He was this guy who worked at a gas station not very far from where we are here. He shows up in 1946, like four years before this movie comes out. And movie stars would pull up to that gas station, and one of them was like, hey, do you want to come swim at my pool? And that's how he became this gay hustler of Hollywood. Oh, wow. And what happened is, you know, you're absolutely right. Like, 
the production code. Everybody had these moral clauses in their contracts where they could not be publicly gay. So all these people were living in these kind of beard relationships, fake marriages, Cary Grant being one of them, right. Rock Hudson a little bit later. And he would just hook people up for $20. And he didn't take a cut. So he was like, I'm not really a pimp. He's still alive. I just met him. Oh, wow. He's 95. Wow. Um, but he basically wrote this book about how he slept with literally everybody, men and women. He says he slept with you know about, like, King Edward and Wallace Simpson? Yes. He nailed them both, he says. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyways. He, I got to read the story. This is it's amazing. It's wild. But, yeah. So, beard relationships, that's absolutely possible. That was just something that, I mean, I just maybe I'm reading into it. I, I love that performance, by the way. George Saunders. Like, it, it, I think he's... He's just a little bit ahead of everybody else. So, you know, and it's funny to see how he, in many respects, is more duplicitous than Eve, in my opinion. Because Eve, at least, like, she's trying to get break into this business. There's something genuine, like, she wants to act. She wants to be loved. But he is kind of on the side, like, stoking the flames of people and, and you know, being a puppeteer of this world. I don't know. There was something more evil about him, and I just, I loved that performance. Yeah, he is in the grand tradition of evil critics that all film critics take tiny note of, of, is this how you feel about us? <laughs> <laughs> because I would like to say categorically, critics do our best not to sleep with anybody famous. It is horrible. <laughs> it, you, it would make our job much harder. But when you think about it, are there any good critics in movies? We're always bad guys, like Ratatouille, Birdman. Well, you are the reason for stress and anxiety. You have to impress. Big night. You got to impress these people. You got to get in there. Um, it, it almost is the person that's going to make you uh, – play your game the best you can possibly play it. It's like it's being recruited or being reviewed. I don't know. The critics in this movie, they loved Eve. They were some good critics. They liked her. That's true. In fact, the moment in this movie that rings the truest to me as a critic yeah. is this one clip from Addison DeWitt where he talks about what we're all hoping for as critics. Margot, as you know, I've lived in the theater as a Trappist monk lives in his faith. I have no other world, no other life. And once in a great while, I experience that moment of revelation for which all true believers wait and pray. You are one. Gene Eagle's another, Paolo Vesely, Hayes, there are others, three or four. Eve Harrington will be among them. I take it, she read well. It wasn't a reading, it was a performance. Brilliant, vivid, something made of music and fire. How nice. In time, she'll be what you are. A mass of music and fire. And that's me. An old kazoo and some sparklers. That is, for real, for real, genuinely how I try to feel every time I sit down. Because I try to go into movies in incredibly dumb and not know anything about it because I like that moment of wondering, who am I going to discover? And I right. can really list in my head the times when you see a film and you're suddenly like, who is that? And you cannot wait for the movie to end, even though you're loving it, so you can get out and Google that person and be like, who is this actor? So I feel about Lakeith Stanfield the first time I started to watch his films. I was like, who is this guy? Uh, no, but Addison, though. Yeah. <laughs> but Addison, but Addison to Addison's me felt— like the Joker. He felt to me more like a gossip columnist because Eve says, I, I read you every day. So more like a, a Liz Smith, like a snarky, like, who said what to whom? You know, we talked about these types of people uh, back in Citizen Kane where we said that, you know, there was this kind of undercurrent where they would, like, lay it out in the trades— they kind of sabotage Citizen Kane from coming out just by getting the word out that these things were – the production was out of control. Yeah, in Citizen Kane, we were talking about how it was a Hedda Hopper and Luella Parsons fight. Mm -hmm. And what I thought was so funny is I was looking at some of the original ads for All About Eve. And the first two quotes they had at the top 
we're ahead of Hopper and Luella Parsons still being like, we're your tastemakers, man. You got to get through us first. See, Citizen Kane was right. They are the power brokers. Speaking of characters, I want to talk about a character that I'm kind of obsessed with, which is Karen. So Karen is, I think, the most evil. Now, I know I just said that I thought George Saunders is. I really like Karen. What's wrong with Karen? I think Karen's the worst. (laughs) I think Karen is the worst because in my mind, Karen is like, Margot, you shit on my husband. And I'm going to fuck you over. And then later on comes up with that whole scheme about the gas and everything like that to make her miss the performance. And it's all done in this idea of like, I'm going to show her like she needs to respect my husband. I know there's that whole thing where her husband wouldn't cast an actress unless she approved. But that makes me go, she is pulling all the strings in this entire movie I see it in her. I see it in her when she goes backstage in that first scene. She's like, you should be thankful for my husband. And and, and Margo's like, I am. I'm just joking. Shut up, Karen. Margo's being a little mean. Margo's being a little mean. I mean, when you're Karen, you've put up with so much if your best friend is Margo. Right. I love their best friendship. To me, I'm like astonished at how well Joseph Mangowitz gets women and right. gets female friendships. To me, It's unbelievable to me how well he does it. And there's so many shifting loyalties. Later on, you know, Karen... Karen turns on her own husband, which she thinks that Lloyd is falling for Evil Eve. There's that moment at the restaurant where she and Margot just become this kind of tag team where, right. where he's like, no, she fell on her knees apologizing. And you, you're you like, how did Bream not catch that fall on your knees thing? Man? Right, yeah. You, we know where he's going. Yeah, 100%. He's just so innocent. But she is justly frustrated with Margot. But then the pain on her face when she realizes how much she sabotaged her friend when they're sitting in the car and she oh. starts to regret Everything she's done to put this evil plan in motion. I don't think she's a bad person. I think her friend can just be a real monster. I just, I think in rewatching it, I was like, I'm watching her and I'm just like, oh, you, you're the one who kind of set this whole thing in motion. Even from bringing back the fan backstage, I feel like she wants to be in this mix so much and... And she's jealous and she's angry and she's like working on many emotions. Well, she gets introduced with that snide line from Addison where he says, nothing in her breeding and background should have brought her closer to the theater than row E. Yes. So mean. So mean. And, you know, when Mankiewicz talked about that character later, when he talked about Karen, he talked about it with all this empathy. He actually said that he had more empathy for her than anybody else in the play because she was what he called, quote, one of the women who are aliens among the natural citizenry of theater folk with a visa valid only for the duration of the relationship. As in, her position's always tenuous, and it doesn't matter what Margot does, she doesn't get to stay there if her husband leaves her. Can you imagine? Oh, 100%. But it's true because I feel like she is the interloper in this world because of relationship. Interloper is such a loaded word, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, I don't think that, I'm not saying that she doesn't deserve to have worth, but she has gained access to this world where she is not a part of it. Like, you know, like, don't you feel like she's even coming into that backstage moment? They, I feel like they have their things going on and I don't know, there is something about her. Hold on. All right. (laughs) Okay. All right. When you're the woman to the guy. Right. And I'm just going to guess. I'm just going to guess on their relationship. But I think we see signs of it when Eve justly assumes that without Karen's yay or nay, without her thumbs up or down, she doesn't get a part. I think that Karen's been right there this whole time in that relationship, giving him good advice, helping him see how women work, 
being the person who never gets the credit, but she has been part of his brain. She's in his brain. Oh, I don't think that she is bad for her husband. Oh, you just I, think she's an alien species invading like some sort of thing <laughs> from Australia no, that gets in all the waters and everything dies? But, no, you know what? Maybe interloper is a strong word. I, <laughs> I, no, but I believe that she's – I think that her – Instinct is to protect her husband, right? She knows that he has this play that's really good. And what a bad person! Uh, <laughs> but no, I'm, I was thinking more to the the point of I think that we've all been in these worlds where you have a bunch of friends, and then someone is brought in to that world that male, female, whatever that they are there because of their association with one person. That that one person is valued so highly in the group that this other person is kind of allowed in with that visa. The way that you just described it is better than I could ever say it. I think that that's a a trope of friendships and friendship circles. And oftentimes, or sometimes, uh, on shorter-term relationships, they will disappear. And other times, they will be incorporated into the group. But there is that period of time where it's like they are in the mix simply because of a relationship. I mean, I think that's totally fair. And you're now that you're describing it that way, I'm thinking how rare it is to even see that in a film. Right. Because that we deal with that every day, human beings with friend groups. 100%. And to watch the shifting allegiances. I mean, would you frame it like that? If this is Game of Thrones, no wonder Karen's like shoring up her base. She's like, Marco's my best friend too. And hey, Eve, let's be homies. Yeah. And I think she is looking for... More islands. Like she, I mean, and not in a bad way. Like she's trying to make friends. She has to work harder than anyone else in that group. She's not the star. She's not the director. She's not the writer. She's not the producer. She's not the critic. She is, and as we are introduced to her, as the wife of the, you know, of the, uh, of the writer. I just think, and, and even, and this is a world in which the writers are slammed right at the top where they're, they gave out those awards to the writers, but the writers are essentially just creating a balcony or a, a beacon to let the, the light of the actor shine. You know, it's like, so we're basically saying like the lowest people in the totem pole are the writers and the directors, and this person is lower than them. So yeah, I, I don't think that, like, I think that her unfamiliarity with that world, even though she's been there for a long time, actually sets in course like a very bad, uh, you know, bad turn of events. I mean, she winds up doing the most damage to everyone involved because she is defensive of this relationship, this camaraderie that they have. Well, That's and, all I was saying. And it makes Eve seem even smarter that Eve can tell from the outside, go to her first. That's the wink link. Oh, 100%. I know. Well, it, she plays on her so well. And watching it again the second time, that's when you really get some of this performance stuff. You just see where it's all going. Hey, everybody. We have to take a brief break in our episode to hear a word from our sponsors. Our sponsors like Casper. Did you get a Casper mattress? I do. I have a nice little bouncy Casper mattress. It's actually really a super comfortable mattress. Um, I can say this in the fact that I've had a Casper now for quite some time, and it still holds up. It's not one of those mattresses that gets crappy on you. They got three. Which one do you have? I have the original Casper, the Wave, or the Essential? I like the original. I'm a classicist. Me too. Okay, it's breathable and it's a cool mattress, even in these hot summer nights, right, Amy? It's, it keeps you cool. I feel so cool when I go to bed. <laughs> and here's the best part I know that people are like, well, I can't be home for a mattress, or how is I going to get in my house? I have a small apartment. Don't worry about it. This thing comes in a box, and it's kind of a fun box. It's like kind of a, 
what you would want or what you would see like in a movie like Real Genius, like a small box that opens up and yeah, it becomes like it's like a mattress sarcophagus. I almost want to, I like wanted to save the box and make it into a human costume. It's so perfectly sized. It's just like oh, somebody brought a human into your house and now it's oh my god, it's a mattress. It is a great box and a great unboxing. Tape it, watch it on YouTube, impress all your friends. Um, look, you spend a third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable on it. And right now we can give you $50 towards Selects mattresses by visiting casper.com slash unspooled and using unspooled at checkout. So that's casper.com slash unspooled. Use unspooled at checkout and check out this waiver essential. I don't know what's going on there. I want to find out what's going on there. I know. You can find it out because you get 100 nights to sleep on your Casper risk-free. And if you don't like it, you send it back. That's it. Just send it back. They'll take it. So go to casper.com slash unspooled. Get $50 off your mattress purchase. Terms and conditions apply, of course. It's the end of summer. You spent a lot of money. Now it is time to save. And why not start by paying less interest on your credit card balances? All right, people. You know me, I'm Paul Shear, the refinance king, and I'm telling you, you need to refinance with a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream. Lightstream, okay? It's <laughs> Is an that easy... the sound of refinancing <laughs> your loan? That's Lightstream. It's uh, it's the James Cameron. Isn't his isn't his uh, company Lightstream? Is it Lightstorm? Um, anyway, save hundreds of thousands of dollars and lower your interest rate. All you have to do is uh, go onto Lightstream, and they're going to offer you a credit card consolidation loan from five point eight nine percent APR with auto pay. That's lower than your average credit card interest rate of over eighteen percent APR, and you can get your funds as soon as the day that you apply. Because Lightstream, here's the thing about Lightstream, and I'll tell you this, Amy, all the time. Lightstream believes that people with good credit deserve great interest rates, no fees. So say goodbye to high interest credit cards all summer and start saving with Lightstream. Amy, have you gone on the Lightstream website? I have gone on the Lightstream website. I have. I'm, tr- I'm trying to be smart with my money. And what I like about this is that they are for people who are smart with your money. It's an easy website to use. You can kind of understand everything one, two, three. It's not overly complicated. You don't feel like you're being duped or tricked. And our listeners can save even more with an additional interest rate discount on top of what they already have. And they're very, very low rates. If you go to lightstream.com slash unspooled, that's Lightstream, L-I-G-H-T-S-T-O. R-E-A-M dot com slash unspooled. See how good I am at spelling? Fucking nailed it. I was really nervous for you. Yeah, I know. Me too. I was freaked out. Subject to credit approval. Rate includes a 0.50% auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com for more information. So I want to say one thing about Karen, who is played by Celeste Holm. Did you know (laughs) that uh, Betty Davis hated her? <laughs> I think it was mutual. Oh, really? Okay. Well, because <laughs> Betty Davis in an interview, uh, she said filming all about Eve was a very happy experience. The only bitch in the cast was Celeste Holm, and then Celeste Holm was like, she talked about all about Eve, and she's like, on the first day of shooting, I walked into set and I said good morning to Betty Davis, and you know how she replied? She said, "Oh shit, good manners," and I never spoke to her again. Again. Ever. <laughs> That's fucking crazy. But um I mean all these people did was insult each other. It feels like the entire movie. Oh yeah. Apparently when Marilyn Monroe came on set, Betty Davis called her in earshot, said, That little blonde slut can't act her way out of a paper bag. <laughs> and then she yelled to her. I know, and you know, and everyone knows that that kitten voice of yours is goddamn lousy, and it is lousy because you never trained it as a real actress does. 
And then Marilyn went to the bathroom and cried and threw up. Wow. Yeah. I like her kitten voice, by the way. Can we play a little yeah, bit of Marilyn? absolutely. So in this scene, we get the first kind of proto-glimpse of the persona that Marilyn's going to adopt. This woman who is super funny and nobody quite knows how to take her and if she's smarter than she looks. But Addison, of course, is on to her because she gets this guy to go get her a drink. A waiter. And that isn't a waiter, my dear. That's a butler. Well, I can't yell a butler, can I? Maybe somebody's name is Butler. You have a point. An idiotic one, but a point. I don't want to make trouble. All I want is a drink. Leave it to me. I'll get you one. Thank you, Mr. Fabian. Well done. I can see your career rising in the east like the sun. (laughs) And it's great. The eye work in this scene is so great. You're watching Eve be respectful of how she manipulated. You watch Marilyn Monroe kind of being like, I'm cute, but I am also know what I'm saying. It, it's a great, like, there's so much going on underneath the words as well. Yeah, it's like this kind of tale of two starlets in that moment. Yeah. You have one starlet who's trying to claw her way to the top with just evil scheming brains and manipulation and cruelty. And another one who's just being super sweet and charming. Yeah. I, I, I really like this performance a lot. And just an interesting aside, uh, Marilyn Monroe's name is Miss Caswell. And Caswell was the middle name of Mary Orr, who was the uncredited author of the short story that this movie was based on. Uh, it was actually ba- – this uh, short story was uh, published in Cosmopolitan. It was called The Wisdom of Eve. And it was based on an actual incident involving an Austrian actress named Elizabeth Berkner. And also, apparently, the real, quote, unquote, like, Eve mm-hmm. uh, saw this movie, knew it was about her, freaked out, totally freaked out, started showing up at Mary Orr's house. Really? Uh, she, like, started writing letters to Mankiewicz, who put up with her. Like, they became yeah. pen pals. Like, when he died and they went through his letters, they're like, wow, he has a lot of letters from this one crazy actress. And then even up to the 80s, she made Mankiewicz have tea with her. And she was like, listen, I really think you need to rewrite this and do it from my point of view. Wow. Oh, yeah. She was like, she seized onto this. That is so fascinating. Now, I'm going to drop a hot take. I don't think Eve is all that bad. Oh, come on. Come on. You, your morals, man. Where are they today? (laughs) (laughs) She's like a psycho killer. This is basically like Gone Girl. You watch her face just turn into a mask. um, There is a moment in this movie that I love of her where the door is closed. Uh, It's after she performs and she's backstage and she has her wig in her hand and she, the anger in that moment where she's like almost like ripping the wig. And like, I love it because again, you get to see like what's really going on behind her. But I, I believe that she is not 10 steps ahead. I think that as she gets a little bit more, she makes another compromise, another compromise, another compromise. And I believe that up until she performs that night, I don't think she's that bad. Wow. I think you're I think it's kind of like you're saying the son of Sam, he was pretty bad, but he was no Zodiac killer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying that look, she's somebody who wants to be an actress and she's trying to get her way in, right? And I think that this profession that we're all in is to a certain extent. Yes, it's talent, but it's opportunity, and it's about getting in front of the right people. Like, did she take a shortcut? Sure, but so did Margot. Margot, what was when she, Margot's shortcut? She was naked. She was naked in Midsummer's Night Dream. She was four. 
She knew. She knew. She was like, <laughs> she was like, you know what? I got to make an impression. At least the way that they present it, that she came out. <laughs> I didn't know she was four. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> but um, it felt to me like we are all these people that are striving to be on top. And, and, and I think Margot is too. I think there's a there is a a world in which we're in where you're you know the thing this movie is so amazing because it does talk about aging and especially women aging in a field where you are just constantly replaced. I talk about this all the time. Like in the eighties, I feel like every eighties movie that I grew up with had a different lead female actress. It was like, yep, one movie and you're done. Like you're a pretty face and you're done, and then you're done and you're done. And I feel like this movie like kind of addresses that, and you have to figure out a way to stay. On top. And and so when I see Eve, I just see a person who has figured out the system. That's the game that's being played. It's not, you know, she's not actively sabotaging anyone until yes, until the end. Until the end. Yes, she is. What? When she has Betty Davis get woken up in the middle of the night before she has to do a play, that is absolutely trying to ruin a lady who's getting she old. She was doing her. that play every night. Oh, no, 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 no. She's trying to make, she's trying to mess with her looks. She's, she's trying to connect her with like, her husband. She's negging her all the time. She's like, oh, I'm not saying you're old. La, da, 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 da. I mean, come on. Her whole thing is just subtly chipping away just a little bit at Margot, driving her crazy, manipulating her every uh, step of the way. Right. And granted, yes. granted, Margot is her own worst enemy. She shows up late for the audition. Nobody makes her do that. She just shows up late anyways right. because she's used to treatment because, you know, she took her clothes right. off when she was four, man. She's been famous for a really long time. <laughs> so Margot, none of the bad stuff would happen to Margot if Margot wasn't Margot. Right. Eve is, you're right. Eve is smart enough to know how to trip Margot. It's like she knows right. that Margot's running around with a blindfold, so she's just putting chains everywhere. I'm not saying that I agree with the way that she did anything. It's just sort of like it's interesting to show a character like that who I think in what they're trying to show. And if we go back to my theory that Birdie is Margot, it's a cycle because at the end, you know, Eve has her person who, you know, says, oh, is this a cab driver that came? You know, it's like, and I just think it's like, it's showing that this is the way this world works. You did it to get here and it's going to be done to you. So I have more sympathy for Eve than I do for Margot because I believe that Margot probably did similar things to get there too. Wow, is it a you're co- just assuming. Okay, I'm assuming. <laughs> is it a coincidence that she's with the director? I don't know. Is it? <laughs> okay, that's true. And what I think is interesting about Phoebe, this high schooler who shows yes. up at the end at, at Eve's apartment. And part of like the Eve club, they have like Eve club. So how much time do you think elapsed in this? Not that much because what they say at the beginning is this it's all a, started in October and now it's June. So, so it's only been eight months. That's what I thought too. But then I was like, wow, did more time pass? Because it seemed to be that if clubs were having like Eve clubs, she is – the biggest thing, I mean, for a theater actress to get that kind of big, it just was kind of... Yeah, she I, was the new eating Tide Pod. They were just like, we're all doing this. <laughs> this is what's happening now. <laughs> Wait, okay, sorry. That. Go Let ahead. Think about it. that time elapsing, though. Yeah. Margot gets to be on top for 20 years. Yes. 30 years, maybe even. Mm-hmm. Eve gets eight months, and then there's a high schooler there. So it's almost like the time you get to be a star is shortening. But It's shorter it, and shorter shelf life. Well, yeah, and I mean, and I think that's... Again, a very kind of relevant idea. Do you think, though, that 
you get so caught up in your own ego because what Eve is, if she's this master manipulator, she should be able to spot this from a mile away, but she doesn't. And I think that's an interesting point too. It's like you get it and then you forget like how everyone would be trying to take right, you down. Like once you're used to it, once you sort of absorb this, this is what I get to do. I get to wear this cape. You forget how everybody wants to wear your cape maybe, although there's an interesting difference between Eve and Margot. You know, when we first see Margot at her taking stuff for granted stage, yeah. she's surrounded by friends and people who love her. Yes. Eve is surrounded by nobody. And that last scene where we start to see Phoebe for the first time is kind of shot like a horror movie. You know, she walks into a room. It's that slow, almost Halloween-ish pacing through her apartment. And then you see Phoebe in the mirror first. I mean, that's straight up yeah. horror movie stuff. And I also feel that even in this idea that Eve is saying to everybody, well, now I'm going to Hollywood, that's almost the evil sequel. Like, she's going to rise again and do this to somebody over there, the woman who owns the nice sable. You know, I never made that distinction that Margot actually had friends, but it's one of my favorite scenes in the film, which is a kind of on this point where she is at her lowest. You go to the club room or whatever it is, and she is there with friends, and they're joking and they're laughing. And I, I feel like there's a moment there that really was kind of beautifully uplifting. It was like, you know what? Fuck it. At least I have these people. And she's trying to be seen, obviously, and, and be out. And But there is a moment there that made you feel like she's going to be okay. And you don't feel that with Eve at the end. You don't feel like she's going to be okay. She's going to... In your analogy here, the horror movie analogy, she might kill somebody when she goes to Hollywood. She might, like, you know, get them a little drunk, drive their car off the road, and then have to take over the uh, the, the role in the picture. Yeah, she might live Betty Davis in uh, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Yeah. God, I love that movie. Oh, by the way, you know, there, this kind of did art imitated life a little bit because Ann Baxter stepped into Betty Davis's shoes to replace her on the series Hotel in 1983 after she fell ill, and Betty Davis never returned to the show. Whoa. Yeah, so Ann a little. Wah, wah, wah. Yeah. I don't trust her. You know how we know that she can be an evil architect? How? Because she's the granddaughter of Frank Lloyd Wright. Oh, I love it. (laughs) It's like a kid joke. I like it. It's like a very educated kid joke. Also, Eve is just a cock blocker. When they're at the airport, right when she's first met Margo and Bill, Margo's leaning in for a kiss. They're having this cute moment, and Eve times it to spoil the mood. She's already doing her evil shit. Also, here's my final proof that Eve is evil. Because what does she get called in this film? She gets called a clever girl. Where have we heard that before? Oh, I don't know. Maybe with an evil fucking dinosaur in the movie Jurassic Park. Clever girl. I don't know Betty Davis, really. This is, like, I think my first introduction to Betty Davis. Oh, my God. You have an exciting life ahead of you. I'm, like, a Betty Davis nut. You know, her story is she was this young theater actress, kind of Eve-ish. She's from this Massachusetts family who claims that they're distantly related to one of the witches in Salem. When she was a kid, she got a little bit burned in a Christmas tree fire. And what she did was she pretended to be blind. She made it even worse until her parents realized that she was lying. But she was just this girl with this flair for the melodramatic. And then she starts to break into theater. She becomes an usherette at this theater when she's a teenager. And then she gets to take the stage because the leading lady of this play breaks her leg. And even at the time, Betty Davis was like, contrary to rumors, I did not break her leg. But people were like, okay. Wow. Well, we'll see. Well, we'll talk about that. Whatever. She always kind of knew that her real love was going to be acting. Her dad, uh, apparently, when her mom was pregnant with her, told her mom to get an abortion. And she always said that it kind of shaped her idea that men 
weren't really what mattered in life. You know, her quote was that she knew she'd always wind up what she called an old woman alone on the hill. Now I'm just like Betty Davis. I'm Betty Davising at you. But I'll fast forward just a bit. So she gets invited to come to Hollywood. She and her mom show up on a train. There's a person from Universal who's supposed to meet her at the train, you know, like pick Mm -hmm. her up and take her back to the studio. Uh, He shows up at the train and he leaves and he tells his bosses that he didn't see anybody who looked like they could have been a movie star. Wow, what a Ouch. dig! Yikes! I, I will say, and this is not uh, not nothing to Simon because I know what Betty Davis looks like, but she isn't untraditional leading lady for this time. It feels like I'm like, oh wow, she's got such a unique, interesting face. Yeah, there's something in these actresses who just had faces, even today, who have faces. You know, there's people yeah. who I think are absolutely beautiful, and I will never remember what they look like. Yeah, totally. And I think you find that now, too. You have, you know, these leading actors that just get put in movies. They're in one, and they're trying to make them a big thing. And that happens with actresses, too. It's just like they're pretty, and they're capable, but they're not memorable. And yeah. I think that's a problem. It's like an argument for taking a risk and not just casting somebody who's like a pretty template. You know? Right. I mean, Betty Davis knew what she looked like. When she got her footprints put in Grauman's Chinese, mm-hmm. what she said was, it's too bad there's no way to imprint my poached egg eyes. Oh, interesting. Right? But yeah, so she gets in Hollywood. She, right off the bat, actually wins two Oscars in her first couple of years here. And then for the entire rest of her career, she loses everything. And she's always fighting with the studios to try to get better parts. They don't really believe in her, probably because she was a little bit mean as well. She basically got really screwed over by the studio system time and time and time again, which was why when she finally had a good part like Margot, she just tore into it and then still lost the Oscar, but like tore into it. Well, I mean, Betty Davis's career was kind of going into oblivion and this film resurrected her from the dead. That's what she said in 1983. Um, And you can see that she does have something to prove because not only is she acting the shit out of this movie, but I believe she's taking chances that an actress at the top of her game would not take to get that notice, to show, no, no, I got the goods and I'm willing to expose myself. And I feel like, you to know. To look so wrinkled, to look so hungry. Yeah, to just even that scene in the opening scene where she's just taking off her makeup to see an actress like that kind of in a, in a state of in-between. And I'm just impressed with her that she goes there so hard, especially because she had this reputation of being difficult. You know, actually, one of the directors she once worked with, uh, this guy, Goulding, uh, wrote a letter to Mankiewicz going like, hey, if you're hiring Betty Davis, be careful, because she will crush you into a fine powder. Literally warning Mankiewicz, do not hire this person. But then she wasn't that bad. And when Mankiewicz asked her why, she was like, yeah, I had to do that because the scripts weren't as good. This script is great. I can relax. A hundred percent. And which makes it even more infuriating that when the Oscars comes around, she's kind of edged out because Ann Baxter's like, you know what? I'm a lead actress, too. This was to be her award. And I think the vote was split. I think it really broke Betty's heart that she lost. I mean, she referred to All About You for a while as like, quote, my false new dawn. And when she lost that Oscar, you know, because a couple people won that year from from All About Eve. Um, George Sanders won, who was playing Addison DeWitt. He apparently went up to her and said, sour grapes, Betty, and she spat at him. Oh, wow. <laughs> Fuck Addison DeWitt. I was right. He is the meanest. Um, and, this but, mo- and this movie also is like the first time where two actresses from one film were both Oscar nominated for Best Actress. It has the most female nominations of any movie, oh, I wow. believe. And it ties Titanic 
and La La Land uh, for having the most Oscar nominations, period. It has 14. Do you think the reason why she's so perfect in this role is because she actually is a theater actress? And to me, I feel like theater actresses have a little bit more bite, have a little bit more um, of this wit about them than a traditional film actress who I think is a little bit more uh, protected from the, uh, you know, they're a little bit more insular. Like they're just on a set. They're not in front of an audience. They're not eating shit on certain nights. You know, I think there's a an element of New York stage theater actress that she brings to this that makes this movie feel grounded and and real. I wonder. I mean, she has said that she did this movie at a time when her life she called it like an unholy mess. Mm-hmm. You know, she's going through a divorce on uh, on the shooting of this. Which is why her voice in some scenes are super raspy because she's having fights with her husband. It's so bad that she like uh, burst a blood vessel in her throat from screaming. And uh, and basically Mankiewicz is like, I like that quality so you don't have to work around it. So she like – so when you see that and you hear that – because I did notice that too. It's like, oh, her voice like, – that like morning after she's fucked up. Uh, it's it's just real. It's real. I mean, although part of what we what we have to talk about is part of why she's even going through this divorce is because she fell in love while making All About Eve with her co-star with Bill. Right. She and Bill just fell from each other from the first time they got put together. They were put together for a photo shoot to see how the younger yeah. man older woman thing would look, which by the way is still so rare today. Like when oh, do we absolutely. see like, never never. Um, so they're put together for this photo shoot. She uh, asks him to light her cigarette, and he won't do it. And she was like, that's my type of guy. I love it. But, you know, they said later on that they married and fell in love as characters, the characters from this film. They divorced, I believe, like a couple years after. Well, that's what makes that speech that Margot gives about feeling that Bill only wants to marry Margot. That gives it this extra resonance because even as she's saying those lines, she's making the exact same mistake. Right. And – you, we we did the Shawshank episode. I mean, and one of the big scenes in Shawshank, in the Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank right. thing, is we get that little, little glimpse really fast in the movie theater of Rita Hayworth kind of tossing her hair back, that scene right. from Gilda that's really, really memorable. I mean, Rita Hayworth's big quote about that was that every man went to bed with Gilda and woke up with her. And this idea of all these re- actresses wrestling with their screen identities, being aware that the men in their life don't see them as who they really are – even when they're making one of the best films ever about it. Right. I want to play a little bit of that huge speech that Betty Davis gives when she's talking about what it's like to be a woman. And she's in the car. She's stuck with Celeste Holm, not knowing that she's been sabotaged. She's not going to get to perform that night. All hell is going to eventually break loose. And here's what she says. Honey, business a woman's career. The things you drop on your way up the ladder so you can move faster. You forget you'll need them again when you get back to being a woman. It's one career all females have in common, whether we like it or not. Being a woman. Sooner or later, we've got to work at it. No matter how many other careers we've had or wanted. And in the last analysis, nothing's any good unless you can look up just before dinner or turn around in bed. And there he is. Without that, you're not a woman. You're something with a French provincial office or a a book full of clippings. But you're not a woman. Now, I'll just say, I get a little touchy about stuff like this sometimes yeah. in scripts, especially when they're written by a dude, mm-hmm. because a lot of times they boil down to, like, 
I'm Black Widow and I can't have babies and that's why I kill people. Right, right. And I hate that. But I think there's a lot of truth in here. There's a lot of truth in here. Like I wouldn't say I agree with every single word she's saying, but maybe I do. Maybe it's so close to me it's hard for me to even think about it. Well, I think there's something really interesting about the way that she says it. I mean, this is the question, can you have it all, right? Can you, you always have to be, you know, I think men can escape this a lot of the times. Like you don't have to be responsible for the grander things. And I think like what she's saying here is you have to do everything that a man does, but then you also have to be a woman. And, you know, and that's in career and success and relationships. But then you have to also be what this idea of what people expect you to be. And I think that that's, I've heard that said a lot. I've heard that said, you know, from working moms who will say, you know, at the end of the day, though, your other job is being a mother and you can't let go of that. And I think what's even another shade to that is that Margot Channing's problem isn't even that she wants kids. She never wants kids. Yeah. She never brings it up. It's not even about that. It's about love for her more than anything, which and we don't even see. Usually it gets tied to your womb. Right. But she just wants to be loved. Well, I think it's also like you have to allow yourself to almost be like a little bit of a damsel in distress to get the love that she wants. But she's powerful. It's like that idea like, you know, men are sometimes put off by powerful women or women who have success. And, and that idea, too, it's like. She has to pretend to be something she's not because to get the thing that she needs. No, but how interesting is it that Eve wants to be Margot? And in this scene, Margot's saying she wants to be a little more Eve. And I think that's why the scene is kind of followed up very quickly with the scene in the club room and and these scenes. Because it's, you know what? Fuck it. My career is my career, but my friends are my friends. And and she kind of like digs into her friends. And again, we feel her to be okay at the end of this movie. I'm not worried about Margot. She's always going to be great. She's always going to work. And, you know, I don't think that she's going to end up desolate or, you know, poor. I just think she's going to fade, but not fade and be alone. I want to cut to somebody else famous who I think really understands this. It's an actress called Tina Fey. I had seen this film before and I I probably saw it, you know, in my 20s. And I have to say, watching it again at 46... I feel like I get it on a completely different level of just like, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. these youngsters are coming yeah, for me. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, here comes Amy Schumer. <laughs> They're coming. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was like I had seen it in a foreign language and then I saw it in English. Just the clarity of it. But I like how All About Eve is changing even underneath Tina Fey. Okay, so guys, Betty Davis, acting legend. Karina Longworth, podcasting legend. Let's combine them both right now. We have Karina Longworth in the studio, the writer, the everything, the host, the brains, the beauty of You Must Remember This. And her new book is coming out this fall. It's called Seduced, and it is about Howard Hughes. Karina, actress feuds. Why do we love actress feuds? What is (laughs) happening with actress feuds? (laughs) Wow, that's a big question. I don't know. I mean, it just probably appeals to, like, our basest instincts of uh, of misogyny <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, not wanting there to be too many women in positions of power, so they have to cat fight it out. Why do so many of these actress feuds have to do with Betty Davis? I mean, we just got through <laughs> feud. I, well, I mean, first of all, like I think that feud is taking something that was created for publicity and exaggerating it right. 
into a television show and I enjoyed parts of Feud but like the very premise that like those actresses like the most important thing about them was that they hated each other I think is incorrect <laughs> like it makes for a good television show but I don't think it was factually correct so back in the day there would be these publicists that would be spinning lies positively negatively yes back in the day that happened <laughs> <laughs> see I'm like I I am such a, a, a dope because I will believe anything I, I like I think the only thing that I knew at one point was like maybe Ashton Kutcher and Brittany Murphy were in like a fake relationship to promote their movie or something like that that's maybe what I remember. they were in true love and also promoting a movie <laughs> maybe they're just boning people can do that right well I want to know like a little bit about like I'm curious about Betty Davis in general, because it seems that this movie kind of, for in her own words, brought her back from the dead. Like, you know, she was someone who was a little bit ostracized from the system. And was that just because she was viewed as being difficult or was it from poor choices? I mean, she was viewed as being difficult and she had been since the 1930s. But what you say about making poor choices, I mean, that's that's why she was viewed as difficult was because she wanted to be able to make choices. And in this system, especially for actresses, but really for any performer, um, the way that the system like kind of kept chugging along was on the assumption that people would be happy to be on these long-term seven-year contracts and to take whatever jobs the studio wanted them to do. Um, and then only a few performers, really, Betty Davis, Olivia de Havilland, a few others, would push back and say, like, no, I'm not going to take, I'm not going to star in a movie based on this terrible script. The way that the studio system worked was that if you refused to be in a movie that, like, was prepared for you, you would go on suspension, which means that you were not working and you were not getting paid. And then the studio, until Olivia Havilland went to court, and Betty Davis also had her own court case related to this stuff, but Olivia de Havilland is the one that changed the law. Until that happened, um, if you said, I'm not going to make this movie, and then the studio didn't find other work for you for a month, they would add a month to the end of your contract. So your month, wow. your contract time to them would just get longer. That's like Greek mythology Hades talking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because she was trying to have these this kind of control over her career, that got her branded as a bitch and somebody difficult to work with. And, you know, she was also probably not very nice to people sometimes. <laughs> but it was mostly that she wouldn't play her role as defined in this system. Yeah, and I've been thinking about that a lot lately, looking about all the actresses of the 90s and 2000s So we just sort of also heard were difficult women, and I absorbed that, and now wondering, what if you erased the word difficult woman and replaced it with, like fucked over by somebody in the studio. Right. Yeah. Well, because you don't hear those terms a lot of the times with men. You know, it's like, you know, like, well, they they had a passion project and this is what they wanted to do. And, you know, they fought hard to get it. It's like you're difficult when you just don't accept the food that is like thrown at you, the slop that, you know. As a former film critic, what do you make of Addison DeWitt? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's a bad guy. <laughs> I mean, I guess he's a theater critic, but he's also a columnist. He's right. sort of like a critic plus like a head of hopper combined together. And he does his real damage by being like a like the a something like a gossip columnist where he's like the go between between like the conniving actress and the media. Is this something that is going on at this time is or is it a little bit more fictionalized and blown out like would there be a gossip columnist who is bringing around a Marilyn Monroe type and and kind of getting them through the system like that or from your knowledge of this world like is it does it feel real I think that uh, Joseph Mankiewicz, who made this movie, was definitely basing the events of this movie on real things, probably not in the theater world, probably in Hollywood. Not a critic would be taking a Marilyn Monroe around. It would be a publicist or it would be like a producer. I mean, she had this guy, Johnny Hyde, who like was a, a, a producer guy who was basically doing that. 
I was wondering also if this is also L.A. taking the piss out of New York a little bit. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely, and especially since there's that whole thing in it where, like, different characters are like, well, why would you even go to Hollywood and debase yourself when the real art is here? I think the movie is making fun of that point of view. Well, like, one of the opening lines, which you pointed out, was, like, they call the Pulitzer, like, a prize that's not even really worth its salt, right, at the top of the movie. <laughs> it's, like, I think in that point of view of a New Yorker going, oh, the Pulitzer doesn't even make a difference. It's, like, they're they're that kind of above it and beyond it. Let's talk about what happened after this movie, though, because Betty Davis kind of called this a false comeback. Like, why mm. didn't the roles mm. get better when she proved that she was awesome? Well, I think that a lot of the movie is about what it's like to be an aging actress, you know? And um, in her 40s, there wasn't a lot of work for her. And what ended up being her real comeback was whatever happened to Baby Jane. Um, but even that was a limited comeback because there was only so much that Hollywood had for a woman of her age. And, like, there was only so much that they could see her doing. I heard that before she got Jane, she took out a variety ad. Oh, yeah. Actually, I think it was The Hollywood Reporter, but don't quote me on that. <laughs> um, yeah, she took out an ad in the trades, and the text of it is amazing. Like, I mean, if, if we could look it up and read some of it. <laughs> like, like, mother of three, divorcee, American, 30 years experience as an actress in motion pictures, mobile still, and more affable than rumor. It reminds me of Melissa Leo, who took out that advertising campaign. It was like, consider me. Where she, yeah. like, wore a fur coat by a pool. Yeah. <laughs> like, and she won the Oscar. It worked. <laughs> 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 like, I guess it's been going on for a long period of time. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. Both of those are unusual cases. Those are both cases of women basically feeling like the industry or like parts of the industry don't take them seriously. And so they're going to do it in their own like kooky, eccentric, wonderful way. <laughs> well, what I love so much about what you do on You Must Remember This is you really make actresses feel like humans. You really give them empathy. Because I think a lot of times when we talk about these stories... We just talk about the quips and the cat fights. Well, I, what I try to do with the podcast uh, that I do is when I'm researching these stories about these time periods, most of them before I was born, um, I just try to find out everything I can about what it would have been like to be alive then. Like when I read about these different events and things people said to each other and the choices that they made, just try to figure out why. And I guess I guess that is empathy. But for me, that's what's interesting is like just really trying to feel like what was it like to be alive in 1938 under these conditions and like how can I understand why that led people to do what they did and how does that get reflected in the movies themselves? Well, now also you kind of have to be like a forensic detective in a way because people's remembrances of what happened, what they said, how they want to position themselves versus, you know, there's always like two sides to every story. How do you kind of distill it in a way that you feel is probably the most realistic version? Well, I just try to read everything I can find about whatever topic I'm I'm researching. And then I kind of just put all of the information I've been able to collect together. And I, I use my knowledge of the period. I use common sense. I use like my experience of being a human in the world and also of like some experience knowing people who have worked in the industry. And I just try to figure out what seems like the most likely truth. And I also just try to be transparent when I don't know and mm -hmm. when I'm guessing. <laughs> <laughs> I like to sound like I know everything. But wait, I'm curious. Did Betty Davis come up at all when you were researching your book on Howard Hughes? Yeah, there is a small section on Betty Davis because she and Howard Hughes had a brief affair. Um, and I, I want to, you know, save it for the book, which comes out November 13th. You can pre-order it on Amazon now. It's called Seduction. Um, but there, she had a really great, like, quip 
uh, about his penis size, in which she used Whoa. a pun. So. <laughs> oh, wow. All right, I'm in. A pun was pre-order, like, pre-order his, is click. You guys, you guys should just guess. <laughs> his mighty propeller? I was like, That's actually, goose? Both of those are more creative than what she said. <laughs> their, their affair did, I'll give you a hint, their affair did predate the spruce goose. Okay. So <laughs> she didn't know that wood would be in his right. future. <laughs> well, kind of to that note, I mean, so much of All About Eve is Eve trying to get on other people's husbands. But I heard that <laughs> Betty Davis had a thing for trying to steal other people's men. I think that she, well, actually, there is this quote in my book where she talks about how she was wantonly sexual, um, that she just, like, wanted to do it a lot, <laughs> and that she just had, like, seemed to have an appetite that was, like, greater than other women and greater than what was expected. I suddenly got struck trying to use all my empathetic facilities to imagine what it would be like being in bed with Betty Davis, and my brain is <laughs> Well, again, in my book, um, there, so oh, there's one of... Um, so this woman that Howard Hughes was involved with named Terry Moore, this actress, after he died, she wrote this book called The Passions of Howard Hughes, which is all just like not even that soft core, soft core porn stories about his affairs with other actresses, not with her. Oh, wow. And there's like a very graphic story about Betty Davis in it. Whoa. Two pre-orders in one day over here. <laughs> um, so for people who all about Eve and maybe feud are their introduction to Betty Davis, I mean, she wasn't a total raging bitch all the time in real life. Like, she did good things in Hollywood too, right? Well, uh, yeah. I mean, she was um, she was the head of the Academy for a while. She was one of the co-founders with John Garfield of the Hollywood Canteen, which was this place in Hollywood during World War II where, like, servicemen could come and, like, have coffees and sandwiches and there would be bands and they could dance with actual movie stars. And the whole oh, place wow. whole place was staffed by movie stars and, like, actually mostly contract actresses who were forced to go there by their studios. <laughs> but at the same time, like, Marlena Dietrich, like, might serve you coffee and Betty Davis might dance with you. Oh, wow. Um, That's and really... she, she was also, like, not only did she... Um, helped start it and she ran it, but she was also, um, she made sure that it remained um, integrated because there were people that wanted to have just like quote unquote Negro only nights or like not let black servicemen in at all. And she insisted that it actually be integrated. I love that. Yeah, me too. We talked a little bit about Joseph Mankiewicz and earlier in the episode, Amy, you spoke about how he really captures women well and these relationships. What do you think it was about him that was able to tap into this because he really is writing these, we talk about these like strong, exciting female characters. He had this fascination with damaged women, <laughs> like both on screen and off. And like he had an affair with Judy Garland. He had an affair with like another troubled actress named Linda Darnell, who's in his movie Letter to Three Wives, which is a great movie. And I think that he just, yeah, he like, he wrote what he knew. <laughs> <laughs> well, Karina... What's going on with you? you must remember this right now. Uh, right now we're doing a season called Fake News, um, which is about the book Hollywood Babylon, um, which is for a lot of people, it's their introduction to these sort of darker Hollywood gossip stories from the 20th century. Um, but the versions of those stories in that book are often completely inaccurate or they're kind of twisted so that um, you get a different impression of these people than what the truth seems to be. And so um, I'm right now I'm doing 11 episodes from 1930 and, and earlier. Um, 
that are basically fact-checking these stories from Hollywood Babylon. And then I'm going to do a short season of the podcast related to my book in the fall. And then in December and January, I'm going to go back to Hollywood Babylon and tell some of the more recent stories from that book, like from the 50s and 60s. Yeah, for oh, people wow. who haven't read that, what is one of the most like outrageous claims that Kenneth Anger makes in there? Um well, uh, we're going to do an episode this season about Clara Bow, who is the it girl of silent film. She was basically like the last sex symbol of the silent era. And he tells a story that she liked to have orgies at her house with the USC football team. Huh. <laughs> and this guy, David Sten, who wrote a biography on Clara Bow, he like fully fact checked that. He went and he found the USC football team wow. from that era. And uh You'll have to listen to the podcast episode. Wow, I love it. I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> well, thank you for letting people on our podcast listen to you, Karina. It's yeah, been of course. Lovely. A pleasure. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Can I just talk a little bit about the year this came out? 1950, which was surprising to me. I looked at the year after I watched it, but it was uh, the start of kind of these changes that would be seen in the next two decades. The Great Depression was becoming a faint memory. Families were moving out to the suburbs. Kids were watching Howdy Doody on 12-inch black and white TV sets and spent Saturday afternoons watching cartoons at the cinema. The consumer revolution was about to start in a very big way. Uh, the man of the household became the sole breadwinner, and the median family income was about $3,000 a year, and milk was still delivered to the doorstep. So this is like an interesting, like, in-between time. This is like... Uh, in many respects, like the Leave at the Beaver time. Yeah, like, I mean, you know. talking about the changing of the guard, this is the year that Sean Connery placed third in the 1950s Mr. Universe contest. Wow. It's amazing. That's where he got that Zardoz bod. Um, also, uh, James Dean got his break in a TV commercial. He was in a Pepsi commercial this year. That was a big break. Uh, the first TV remote control was invented called the Lazy Bones. What for the TV was like the size of my hand. Couldn't they just put it in front of their face? I don't want to get up, change the oh, channel. I want to sit back and watch Howdy Doody without <laughs> any kind of interruption. Also, uh, other films in the cinema, Cinderella, Samson and Delilah. We talked about Sunset Boulevard and Father of the Bride. Just to give you an idea of what's going on. But this movie is uh, is dark. It's fun. I mean, it's. I'm so happy to have seen it. I will be honest. When I first started watching it, I was like, oh, huh. Okay, I get it. And then it clicked over for me, and I really got into it. Um, why is this movie so beloved? Because I, every woman that I speak to love this film and has seen it multiple times. And it's sort of like a movie that in my guy circle of things is not a movie that I've really heard really? that much about. But what do you think is the why this movie is so resonant? Wow, I guess I never, it never occurred to me that guys don't talk about it as much. When we talk about strong female characters, to me that means somebody like Margot. And Margot is incredibly weak a lot of the time, but she is fascinating and she is complicated. And she gives Betty Davis so much to do. And they all are, even, even Celeste Holm, who you hate. <laughs> <laughs> I think Karen has a lot of complicated moments. If somebody is a weak link, I do think it's Anne Baxter. But because she's playing this woman who is so fake all the time, she right. plays her so blank in a lot of the yes. ways that I find her – I think she takes it maybe a step too far with the blankness. Well, that's what I think was so refreshing about that scene where she is in repose when the door is closed and you get to see her. And when she is confronted in uh, in upstate New York, you know, you see these moments, these glimpses, and it's like, oh, she's really good. But you wanted to see a little bit more of that, you know? Yeah, the few times—I think it's interesting that the first two times we see her absolutely break and get discovered, 
she barely even talks. She just spins around and she looks like Bat Boy. Do you remember yeah. Bat Boy from mm-hmm. like the old? Yes, 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 yes. She looks animalistic. She looks terrified. But there's also these two times where even when Eve's in public and kind of giving her performance as Eve Harrington, she slips up just a little bit and actually says something that becomes more true when you get to know her character better. She actually gets real without even maybe realizing she gets real. Or actually, I think she does realize that she gets real because in the two clips we're going to play, you hear the music kick in afterwards to kind of say like, hey, the spell is breaking. Do you know what you just did? Right. I guess it started back home. Wisconsin, that is. But just mom and dad and me. I was an only child. Used to make believe a lot when I was a kid. Acted out all sorts of things. What they were isn't important. But somehow, acting and make believe began to fill up my life more and more. It got so I couldn't tell the real from the unreal. Except that the unreal seemed more real to me. I'm talking a lot of gibberish, aren't I? That one... I like because she's clearly being this Eve creation, right. but that's also what she's probably been doing her whole life is playing make-believe, which she's doing in a way that nobody yeah. even realizes at the moment. And then in this one, this is when all the actors are talking about why they like to act. Why, if there's nothing else, there's applause. I've listened backstage to people applaud. It's like, like waves of love coming over the footlights and wrapping you up. Imagine... To know every night that different hundreds of people love you. They smile. Their eyes shine. You've pleased them. They want you. You belong. Just that alone is worth anything. And then there's the music being like, wake up, honey. You know, I have to say that, uh, and maybe it's just me... This is a movie that really requires your full attention. There's so much going on here. This movie requires you to be right front and center, watching every move that's unsaid as well as said. And even in watching these clips, I feel like I'm, I almost feel like, oh, I'm seeing this for a whole different way right now. I agree. I mean, one of my favorite little details in this movie, just in the production design, yeah. is when you first see Eve reach for the award in that freeze frame, that yeah. kind of modernist freeze frame, what's behind her is a gun pointing at her. Oh, there really? are all these guns right behind her. There's a subliminal deadliness. I mean, this movie is just so detailed. I, honestly, I couldn't find a bad review of this film from when it came yeah. out because it is so great. All I could find was an actress who wrote a letter to the New York Times complaining about the film and sort of feeling like nobody else was saying the truth that she saw about the film. Here's what she wrote. I am writing to you in the hope that you will allow a small voice of protest to be heard in the face of all this acclaim accorded all about Eve. The film leaves one with an impression that anyone earning his living in the theater is at best a wild-eyed antisocial neurotic and at worst a soulless psychopathic creature devoid of any human feeling who manipulates and destroys whoever crosses his path for his own aggrandizement. She says that George Sanders and Anne Baxter have, quote, satanic qualities. And then finally says, if it were not for the brilliant acting of this cast, who is, as characteristic of too many performers, allowed themselves to be exploited to the destruction of their own interests, this picture would go in the ash heap. Interesting. So she was a little mad. A little mad. A little mad. And before we wrap it up, I want to ask you about voiceover. Is this the first time that multiple voiceover has ever been done in a film? Oh, like people fighting over stuff? Well, or, like, controlling the narrative? Well, yeah. Well, funny you ask that. 
you know, written by Joseph Mankiewicz. Does that last name sound familiar to you? It does indeed. Why? No, I know, I know it sounds familiar, but I, but I even looked at his IMDb and I was like, I don't see the total connection, but I know Mankiewicz is, is there. Why would I know it? Tell me. Because Joseph Mankiewicz's brother, Herman, wrote Citizen Kane. Oh, that's what it was. And okay. Citizen Kane has a bunch of? Voiceover, and competing voiceover, da, yes. Da, 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 da. Oh, interesting. The world all fits together. I love that. I love that element of it because you're kind of switching narrators. It kind of equally weighted all the characters. Everyone has a story to tell. Uh, and that was very cool. Everyone has a story to tell. Uh, I get we should wrap up, but yes. do you think the Simpsons have a story to tell? Because I'll just say it. They do. <laughs> There's an entire Simpsons episode called All About Lisa. Oh. It is about Lisa taking over from Krusty the Clown, and it opens with the same sort of narration. This distinguished-looking gentleman is a highly respected actor. It's not important what he says or who he's a parody of. Only one person... Well, this movie, I mean, you'd be hard-pressed to argue that it's not great, but the question I'll ask is, 28, too low? It could be too low. I, I feel like after watching this film... It feels too low to me. Yeah. Uh, this movie is really wonderful and so kind of perfect on every level. I I mean, if we're saying this is one of the best written films on the list, it's got to go on the top 10, right? I mean, w- like, what else are we watching at a certain point? I mean, if, 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 you know, I know a lot of people like slagged us for Titanic, but we never really attacked the dialogue in it. Like, well, let's talk about the dialogue here. It is amazing and next level and, argu- and, and arguably some of the best writing. Like, I think this movie, if it was in the top 10, I would have no problem with it. Yeah. Also, I'd like to say, why are we slagging on the Titanic dialogue when a uh, French connection is here? Ah, <laughs> you can see where the current API, that's the Paul and Amy Institute list, is right now. Uh, we've updated it at unspooledpod.com. And you can join our conversation about all about Eve uh, on our Facebook group and on our Twitter page. Uh, we'd love to kind of continue talking to you. But now, Amy, I believe it's time to roll the die. All right, here we go. It's the first time I'm rolling the die, or maybe not the first, but one of the few times I'm rolling the die. Let's see. I don't want to mess I'm it up. I'm excited about this. Don't screw it up, Paul. Uh, 29, which is? Which is? Double indemnity. Ooh, okay. Oh, let's get dark. I am excited. I love this movie. Okay, this is going to be a good one. All right, so for next week's episode, we want you to help us create a perfect crime. Yes, I know. Let's murder Engineer Sam. That's right. Engineer Sam, he's a likely guy to be murdered. He has all of our files, and we have to kill him to get them back. Say hey, Sam, so people can know your sad, sad voice before you're axed. This is it for me. (laughs) So what we want you guys to do is tell us how you would murder Sam. Structure it beat by beat. And then, and then, and then, and then. And from that, we will make the perfect death of Engineer Sam. Bye, dude. It's nice knowing you. Yes. So keep it short, keep it tight, and remember to keep on saying, and then, so we can put them all together into one perfect murder plan. All right. So what you're going to do, as always, is call into us, 747 666 5824. That 747-666 is in the death of Sam is coming. 5824. I'm excited. I love this. So that's what we'll be talking about next week. But make sure that you subscribe to this podcast if you're listening and you like it. Recommend it to a friend and join us on our Facebook page and our Twitter page as the conversation always continues there.
This is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season three has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, season three is a great jumping on point. And we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Fake nuts. <laughs> Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen <coughs> me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins yeah. has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Uh, yes, I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. <laughs> oh, Jesus. I mean, Jazos. <laughs> ruler of the eighth circle. And that's just the beginning. Season three of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.